Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our lockdown project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. Hello and welcome to Wise Children's Tea and Biscuits and today I am speaking with my dear and old friend, I hope I'm allowed to call you that, Tom Morris. Hello Em, how are you? I'm all right. It's January, it's cold, it's lockdown three, I'm struggling but you know, can't complain, I'm all right. How about you? Well I think we're going to look back on on this month as the January, the January which is the 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 deep pit of confusion i think it's the most it's the most confusing month i've ever found myself in the middle of i mean it's like the endless rule changes about what we can do and the endless challenges of of trying to um engage with people and on zoom all the time it's like i've just done a, a today i was were doing a reading. I mean, I wasn't doing it. The actors were doing it on Zoom, and everything, everything just feels like a sort of um, broken version of itself. And because theatre is full of such gifted and generous people, you just have this feeling of day after day, people throwing themselves into these impossible tasks with massive generosity, but it's broken. So I'm I'm not feeling that chirpy, but this is going to chirp me up. Oh, don't, Tom. Well, I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit I've already had a bit of a cry once today. So I was I was hoping that you would cheer me up, but it's tough, isn't it? It's tough to um, find the resilience that one's used to. Yeah, and I think it's well, you know, it's 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 not just our industry, is it? I think I think it's tough. It must be tough, whatever your job is, whatever, whatever you know, the, the kinds of... I don't expect we even feel it any more acutely than anyone else. We, I, I just think we know our version of it, of mm. being collaborators and being people whose job is to believe impossible things and be hopeful and be brave, the thing that you taught me, Emma, above anything else, <laughs> how to... How to deal with a constant state of terror? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, I got yeah. my 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 state of terror. This will make you smile. Is because I now live in the country in Somerset. I went for a walk yesterday, and I saw a buzzard. I believe it's a buzzard. I had to go and cross-reference with a book, and it was yeah. it wasn't scared of me, and I couldn't believe it. And I got my phone out so that I could identify this bird and I took a picture and it didn't move and I got right up close and I took a picture and then I thought oh my god he's gonna he's gonna get me <laughs> I got properly I thought why isn't he scared of me and then I got properly scared and I put my hood up and um, my glasses on because I thought that he would think I'm a mouse or something and was gonna peck my eyes out so I, I got a, I managed to whip myself up into a state of terror about a bird was he on a post or was he on the floor he was on was a he- post 
on the floor. I could have. But they're quite big, aren't they? They're buzzards? big. They are big, and I, I am. I felt like he was. I thought he, he took me on and he, he stared me out. So, I, I was going to say that that my life isn't very frightening because I'm at home all the time. But I did have a moment of terror with a, with a buzzard yesterday. I love buzzards because my when I was a child, my dad was a sort of um, dad who basically. <laughs> His fine, one of his finest moments was was always when we were in a car. He had very sharp eyesight. He'd be driving and he'd say, "There's a buzzard." <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would have to. Well, there's a kestrel, <laughs> or you know. He, but, but he was always buzzards were quite rare in those days. Rarer, I think, than they they are now because they'd the gamekeepers had got them all. Oh. Now the buzzards are coming back. They're great. Well, I know, and they've got their eye on me. I can tell you. It's they're like... going to pick you up and take you away. <laughs> Um, well, um, I don't know where to start. We've got so much to talk about, Tom. But on a really simple level, what's your favourite biscuit? And have you got one in front of you? Well, um, I haven't got one in front of me. No, I, that's an elementary piece of prep I haven't done, isn't it? But and, and I couldn't get to a shop in time to get one. And I don't even know what they're called. But the top of them is a marshmallow. <gasps> No, they've got chocolate round and a biscuit underneath, and they come in a red and silver tin foil. Do you know what I mean? About a wagon wheel. No, I do love those as well, though. <laughs> I, I love a wagon wheel. <laughs> there's, a, there's a rehearsal room in Kennington where, um, on, on when we're doing a show with absolutely no budget, we sometimes rent it if we have to rehearse in London, and it's a youth club. And they in the tuck shop in the in the whatever they call it, they sell wagon wheels still now. I mean, I maybe they don't now. Maybe the COVID has seen it off. But I love a wagon wheel, but no, I'm not thinking of those. I'm thinking of those little things that are don't um, balloons. Yeah, those they're they're like little balloons. Yes, they've got a posh name. Simon believes <laughs> it's the Tunnock's tea cake. It could be that. It could be that, but they're very good anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, I don't want to talk about COVID too much, but Tom, you run a venue. You run the Bristol Old Vic. You're the artistic director. And I cannot imagine the pressure that you're under. And and then I want to times that by 100, because I know you. And you are the master of solutions and finding ways to make things happen. And... You've you've taught me over the years. We'll talk about it. You know, you've you've always managed to make amazing things happen, and I cannot imagine how you are coping and have coped with the changing landscape and the inability to make theatre happen. Well, it's thank you. It, it it is it's incredibly draining. There's no doubt because um, I think anyone who runs a venue is essentially. Um, you know, a, a sort of impossible dreamer and a planner, and you're trying to sew things together and make them land. And um, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But the experience of the last year has been obviously all of them have failed pretty much. So so and and a bit of your a little bit of your life and enthusiasm is irredeemably lost every time one of those things fails and that's difficult however i have to say this month even though it's the month of confusion and the pit of confusion um i i've sort of been 
it's it's become we've been weaving and unweaving our program you know we thought we were going to have shows on in january then we cancelled those then we thought they're going to be in whatever we we keep making plans and cancelling them um and of course that is very draining but the fact is with the combination of the furlough scheme and the government bailout for culture we're still here i'm still i've still got my job and i was talking to a director because there was a there was a week a couple of weeks ago in which all the theatres realised that theatres weren't going to be open in April, and then lots of people thought they were going to be open in May, and lots of people thought, "Oh, forget it, they're not going to be open until September." I was talking to a director about a show we were working on together, actually, not in Bristol, which had been cancelled, and to, to trying to check that she was all right, and she said, "In the last week, I've had my whole year's work cancelled," and what you don't automatically think about when you're struggling it as someone in a theatre is every time we change our plans there's a whole lot of freelance artists who have to change their plans too and they haven't got a salary behind it or and they can't go on furlough many of them so and and, and that means that you know last year a whole range of brilliant freelance artists and theatre makers from you know performers on stage to backstage people design teams had to go and find other work in order to feed their families and and now with with things going on longer than we'd hoped which is where we are now there's another however many thousand of those amazing people who actually are the people who make the work they're the people that make the work that makes our theatre industry and our creative industry so successful. Another whole lot of those people are going to be out of work. And I'm going to be, you know, I have these surreal things where I have to write references for actors who want to be ambulance drivers or teachers or, well, of course, all brilliant things. But there's a, it's, in other words, the real burden is not carried by us, however hard it is. It's by those people who are the lifeblood of the industry who make the work. I'm not cheering you up, am I, Emma? It's not <laughs> getting better. It's like, how do we... Uh... I, I really hear you and I feel... I, I see and feel exactly the same. Exactly the same. Mm. Um, cheer us up, although I happen to know what your first choice is and I fear you <laughs> might not. Tell me about your first music choice and why. Well, it, it's, an, it's a Nick Cave song from one of your shows from Tristan and Isul. And um, and I might have got this wrong because I've only seen the show six times. <laughs> <laughs> I think but, I've, I'm surprised it's so few. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably is more than that, isn't it? But, the, um, but it's, the, it's from Tristan and Isult, um, which had a huge uh, impact on me when I first saw it. And it's, it's one of your shows that I absolutely love, made for and with Nehi. And um, and obviously, in case people don't know, it's it's a it's a story of a uh, a woman who's in love with two men. She marries the king, and she's in love with the kind of cool dude um, warrior Tristan, and um, and it's a tragedy. And there's this most extraordinary moment towards the end, as I remember it, when. <clears throat> um, when the king, who she's married to, has discovered the truth of everything about her. Um, and he knows that she's passionately in love with someone else. And 
Um, and he turned in the staging that I remember, I seem to remember when you did it in Bristol once, Mike Shepard, who's playing the King, was out in the auditorium and he turned back to face the stage and she's on the stage. And you see their eyes meet and I think, uh, you just see their eyes meet and you go, what's gonna happen? And then suddenly this song comes in and, and you realize that he is, he's giving her the gift of love at this moment that alongside judgment, confusion, ang anger, whatever else there is, um, it's acceptance and it's a positive moment. It's, he's making himself vulnerable against all the odds with great courage. And the, and I guess, I don't know what was behind it. You could maybe uh, tell us, tell us when, when, when we've heard the song, but the song seems to completely back that feeling. As if you're saying this is, there's no qualification about it. And it doesn't matter how many other, <laughs> someone else has been in love with her, which is the main love story. For now, it's 100% about this love story. And it's, I've always found it overwhelming when I've seen it. Um, and I'm sure when I listen to, I don't, don't know whether I've ever listened to the song without seeing it. So I'm going to see it while we're listening. In my mind, I'm going to see that moment again. Come over here, babe. It ain't that bad. I don't claim to understand the troubles that you've had But the dogs you say they fed you to Lay their muzzles in your lair The lions that they led you to lie down and take a nap Other ones you fear are wind and air I love you without measure Seems we can be happy now It's better late than never Sweetheart, come Sweetheart, come Sweetheart, come Sweetheart, come Sweetheart, come Sweetheart, come Now weep for their evil deeds 
but their lack of imagination. Today's the time for courage, babe. Tomorrow can be for forgiving. But if he touches you again with his stupid hands, his life won't be worth living. Sweetheart, come, 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 sweetheart, gets me tom oh it's amazing when that chorus comes in it's amazing isn't it so i want to know when you were making that when you were making that show how did that idea and that moment and that piece of music come together can you remember oh i remember vividly and and i and i feel very nostalgic for that time in my life and my career because you know we were fearless and I mean, we were listening to a lot of music. We listened to music all the time at the Barnes and at Knee And we were really into Nick Cave. And I remember listening to this. And I can't remember, as with all things Knee I don't remember whether it was Mike who said it or me who said it or you who said it, you know, whatever. But um, somebody said, oh, this is like when Isolt gets back together with King Mark. And I often use music to... Um, for actors to, I don't like the word improvise, but to explore with, because I feel that music takes away a lot of the fear and that you can fill the room around them and ask them to just be. And I can remember doing an exercise and I said, you know, come back together, see what happens, I'm going to put on some music. And so were you, over, Sorry, were you already, you were in the rehearsal process? Yes, for, in the rehearsal process. Right. Um, had been listening to Nick Cave 
Yeah. Got to that scene, Ava Maggio, Mike Shepard. I said, I'm going to put this on. Don't use any words. Just feel what it's like for a couple. And I, I wanted them to feel old, you know, middle-aged couple. Who know that there's been infidelity? Just see what happens. And, of course, two amazing performers. And I can remember looking and thinking, well, that's it. It doesn't need any words. It doesn't need anything else. That's it. And, you know, I, I had the confidence of youth to not question that. And I can just remember saying, that's that's it, bottle it, whatever happened then. And then you, you know my process, but, you know, you I, I go back and say, this is what worked. And we crafted it and we worked into it. And as with all things, it's a living, breathing scene. But but I didn't, I never questioned it from that first time. Mm. Um, and I would question it now because I do question used music, um, found music now, and I um, I try and use more um, original music because it keeps living composers in work, and you know, and and I think it's it's used more readily in in theatre now. It's it, but at the time it just fell like a piece of ripe fruit, and I never questioned it. And I'm interested because lots of different people have played Isult. Yeah. Um, has anyone else ever played King Mark? Yes, Stu Goodwin. We've had one other King oh. Mark, but um, Mike Shepard's done something like 650 shows in that role. Amazing. And does that, does the moment change with the same piece of music when it's different actors or do, is there something that's... No, uh, uh, yes and no. Different actors bring different things to it, but it is choreographed now with the music and and it feels quite important Tom how come you've started interviewing me just just a question to throw out there <laughs> I thought it was just a chat <laughs> um, but we, we've got a few shows to get through yeah okay there's some there's some absolute landing markers which everybody who plays that scene hits because yeah. as you described he has a knife which is a key part of the of the myth because um, he leaves a knife in the forest to show that he's found his wife sleeping with another man. And we, we that you have to know that he chooses not to kill her. And yeah. you see the moment when she... She also offers herself up. She says, if you need to kill me, metaphorically or realistically, it doesn't matter, you can. Yeah. And, we, and so there are key markers that happen, but the, every performer brings their own experience to it. And I don't mess with that. You know, I don't mess with what people bring to shows. I, I, I give them their privacy, actually, as, as they open themselves up. We don't have to talk about it. And this, like you say, this amazing record enables every actor that sits within this song to to reveal themselves in a really protected way. It's amazing. I'm going to take us back, though, because we could stick on this for ages. So we met Mr Morris, I can't even remember the year, I guess it might have been 2000 or 2001. And I believe that you were running Battersea Arts Centre at the time and yeah. I had just directed not my first but my second show for Knee High, which was The Red Shoes. And David Chubb... I think we met before then. Oh, no. When did we meet? Little White Lies. No way. I didn't know you saw Little White Lies. Yeah, it played in the Bassey Arts Centre. Wow. It played in the, in the old Studio One. You were in it. I was in it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Um, which was, yeah. That was so to the, Alibi when I was... Yeah. 
very much and only a performer, directed by Nikki Sved, written by Dan Jameson. Gosh, I've erased, I haven't erased the show from my memory, but which, which space were we in? I think you were in Studio One. I don't think it's called that anymore. I but know, you go I know, yes, I remember. Yeah. Oh, forget it. Me, really, we just made, it was just like a hell of, but I, you see, I feel as if I met you because I watched you performing, but you, you, I was just in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I might have met you in the bar. But anyway, go on. So, we met properly, though, later on, didn't yes, we? Yes, we met properly. Thank you for digging me out of that on the red shoes and um it was programmed david job came down to see us at heligan gardens which pro- pro- provoked a lifelong friendship there and he under your artistic directorship brought us to battersea art center and really it was the beginning of a, a massive journey which possibly has never ended for me because obviously i i, I was making i started i was transitioning from being a performer to being a director we I was in Cornwall I've been immersed in Cornwall and knee-high for many years and I I made red shoes and it felt like it it had pulled together so much of my own life and my own experience of storytelling and storytelling for children but also Poland and my training over there and I felt it was special I've always had a big enough ego to sort of think I, I think that this is special and I wrote five letters I remember I wrote five letters with little parcels of photos and one of them went to Battersea Art Centre and you booked us and everything changed you know you're look at us now you know look at what we've gone through but you took that show completely not under your wing but to your heart I can remember you saying I'll tell you one thing that might make you laugh is I remember you saying after you'd seen it um, meet me in the bar tomorrow and I'll give you my thoughts. Now, I didn't even know this was a thing. I was like, what does he mean, his thoughts? And you gave me notes, we would call them, but it was really engagement. And I can remember thinking, I, I don't actually understand what this transaction is because no, at, at Nehi, we just made shows and did them, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I'm very talked about making them better or changing them or or what, you know? And it took me a little while to, to work out that relationship which I now treasure very, very highly. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because in hindsight, I just think, oh, God, another person running a theatre obsessed with their own <laughs> response to the work. I mean, yeah. But um, what I, I, I mercifully erased that, me trying to give you notes on that. Uh, but <laughs> but what I can remember is, the is again, the, the extraordinary impact of seeing that show and... So many different aspects of it from, um, you know, again, lots of found music in that, wasn't there? The, yeah. the, um, but also just a company that the, 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 I guess you, you, you might connect it with your, your Polish training, but the company with suitcases in underwear, in pants, it's some sort of, um, like a, like a, um, a band of of broken people who wouldn't be who refused to be broken who were going to tell this story i don't know it was an amazing piece of work amazing piece of work and yeah for me the beginnings of um, a very important journey of learning about how to make theater um and i would say you know not just your way of making theater but how to make theater at all i can't really separate them uh, so a very important moment for me but I didn't pick any music from that show, sadly, so we can't listen. 
Well, don't worry. There's, don't <laughs> worry about it. We had such a lot to choose from. Um, but what you did, of course, is what Tom Morris always does, which is that you 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 move things forward. So the next thing you did was co-commissioned a, a show. You commissioned. A, a, we worked together, didn't we? We co-produced a show, The Wooden Frog, and um, and we worked together. So at first, we were looking for a writer for me to work with, and it became clear to me that you should write it and I don't think you didn't expect that to happen and I don't think I expected it to happen but you are such a wordsmith and you were so um engaged it's a simple and present and certainly as an older woman I value that more and more you know if people come and go in your life and it's the ones that sort of just stay present and you you did that from the minute we met you you've been there and learnt about knee-high, learnt about me, learnt about Mike, learnt about the process. And we sort of stumbled into working together. And I have amazing happy memories of the wooden frock, of the um, the way that we devised at that time. And your amazing writing, which I'd like to talk about. But before we talk a little bit more about it, I'm going to do my first music choice. Oh, yeah. And it's a slight tragedy because, you know, we didn't really archive those early shows. They don't exist. We didn't record the music from them. So I can't do one of the um, the original songs. But one of the bits of found music in The Wooden Frock is Tom Waits' Grapefruit Mood. So we're going to have another crack, cracked voice, old geezer, singing another beautiful song. Grapefruit moon One star shining Shining down on me Heard that tune Now I'm pining on it And you see Cause every time I hear that melody Something breaks inside Shining can't turn back the tide. Never had no destinations, could not get across. Inspiration, oh, but what a cost. And every time I hear that melody, something breaks inside. And a grapefruit moon, one star shining is more than I.
find i've got a cd of some very ropey recordings of some of the other songs from that oh, show send it over we're trying to pull together an archive so send it over my favorite i have you got it the goose song i don't think the goose song is on there there was this moment in the in the show and i tell you what there's a as a director and particularly as a director that's been a performer there's the funniest moment, which is the moment when actors just lose it, that they think it's too much. Then they, And it's often around a quick change or a costume. And they come on, they say, this is absolutely impossible. I cannot do this. And it's usually, you know, getting when people are getting scared. And, and I've been, as a performer, I know that feeling very well. But as a director, you can sort of see it coming. But the biggest sort of tantrum I've ever had was over the Goose song, which is... Our poor actors in the wooden frock had, um, they had these props which were designed by Vicky Mortimer, which were Wellington boots. And if you imagine a Wellington boot nailed onto a plank, so they were like skis, and at the end of the plank, there was an umbrella sticking out the end with the handle facing forward to be a goose. So they were walking on planks in Wellington boots with umbrellas being geese. It was absolutely adorable. And then you wrote them a song which had every rhyme with ong. So it was, you would not believe what is going along, ong, ong. She cannot tell what is right, what is wrong, ong, ong. And then it had something like five verses with a long, wrong, gong, bong. And the, the combination of the skis, some stairs and your song, and they were playing ukuleles as well. And I remember there was a few tears in that. And I can remember... I, I think that's because, and I'd forgotten this, but I think for some completely absurd reason, um, it was definitely my fault, but I think you agreed that we changed the lyrics. <laughs> or something. All these almost identical lines. We, oh, God. Yes, I do remember that. It um, was cruel, wasn't it? But they did do it. And the audience, everybody who saw that show, is the first yeah. thing they say is, we love the geese. And love the actors geese. hated them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that was that was an incredible process. And again, you know, in terms of learning about theatre, um, so you, I mean, you know, you describe it that you asked me to come and, and write it. And I'd obviously done bits and pieces of writing, but I really wasn't expecting that. Um, and then I didn't understand what the process was. And, and, and when we started, there wasn't really any of it there. 
don't think, I don't think we had a draft or anything. No. Um, <laughs> but, but but you somehow managed to construct the, the, the work in a way that um, anxiety wasn't really possible because, you know, you just, you would just say, right, in 45 minutes, we're going to sing the song about whatever it was. And, and me and Stu Barker would say, what song? <laughs> and you'd say, you go write it. And then come back in 45 minutes. Or or a scene, you know, they, go into the bit of the knee-high barns where there's a motorbike with Mike Shepard and come up with um, <laughs> some lines for the nurse to say while she's teaching, the nurse played by Mike Shepard, while she's teaching the girl, the art of self-defense. <laughs> it's the most liberating process I've ever been involved in. You just had to get on with it. And then if it was rubbish, you'd chuck it out. And if it was more or less okay, you found a way to make it work. Yeah, simple editing. <laughs> oh, and I still, it's funny how those shows live, live with you because I still, in my head, I regularly think about the nurse's advice in that show, which was to play for time. Yeah. <laughs> which I think about a lot in time of COVID. You know, when you're sort of, you're thinking, I'm on my knees, what can I do? What yeah. can I do? Play for time. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It was the last resort. Yeah, amazing. Um, amazing process. I wonder whether, I mean, what would be great would be, you were saying you, you were looking back on the, on the freedom of that creative process. And it, it did feel very free and you, you made it free, I think. But that's we need that spirit now, don't we? We do, we do. And I, I feel, um, I, I've talked a lot about fear in my career and how it's useless. And the, the, I think I, if I'm good at one thing, it's I'm good at taking the fear out of the process and out of the room. But, but it's hard at the moment. It's coming in from a lot of sides you know I feel it creeping in to myself so when we do get back yeah we need to find the freedom find the joy yeah and, and find that that instinct that crazy instinct we certainly had in those days and I you know I we were, really were unaffected by anything at that time at knee high we really did go to these barns in the middle of nowhere and make each other laugh make each other cry challenge each other but we weren't looking over our shoulders we weren't looking at other what other people were doing fearful of what people will think none of that entered our minds at that time and i i i'm very nostalgic about that yeah i mean it was interesting though because it was a combination of playfulness and and hard work and phys and like you went for you took the company for a run every morning i did and, including the writer whether he liked it or not <laughs> and and, and so there would be a sort of group, a little bit of a group physical push together, um, and then this atmosphere of play. And, and I guess, you know, I, you talked a little bit before about the um, working with Garcianice and where you trained in Poland and that. And some of that probably comes from that, does it? But it was yes. but perhaps less playful in Poland. Yeah, and I mean, that's really the, the sort of the joyful coming together of me and Nehi, which is that my sort of Eastern European hardcore and Katie Mitchell hardcore rigour, which is where I'd come from, and, and seriousness, blended with this group of absolute crazy mavericks who would do anything for a laugh 
uh, for, uh, for the audience to laugh. Yeah. You know, we're committed to being silly, serious about being silly. And that's what I always think is that I gave them the license to be serious and they gave me the license to be funny. And that's where the chemistry happened. Yeah. Give me your next choice and tell me why. Well, um, this is a this is a song from another knee high show, um, "Nice of the Circus," which which another one that we did together, um, adaptation of that extraordinary Angela Carter book. Um, and there is a song in it, uh, which is called "Do You Know of the Land Where the Lemon Trees Grow," and I, I still don't quite understand this. I think there is a real song with those lyrics, but we didn't have those lyrics, so. Um, we there was a point there's a kind of pivot emotional point in the story um when the when the tiger tamer meets um the heroine really the 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 sort of um this wonderful um a woman who's recovering from abuse and the beginnings of a relationship happens i mean um, and I, I can't remember how we ended up. You said we should use this song. And it was one of those moments where Stu Barker and I had to go off and, and come up with something. Um, and in this case, it sort of worked. And then actually, you mentioned David Jubb. I hadn't thought about it for a long time until going to David Jubb's wedding, when it was sung at his wedding, this song. And, and actually since then, it's it sort of stayed in my head. Um, so it's a memory really of that of working with you on that show and discovering Angela Carter, I think, as well. Well, I'm delighted you chose this. I love this song. I think the lyrics are all yours, Tom, and I think they're absolutely stunning. I'm going to talk about that later. Um, and Nehi, all clubbed together, all of them came together on my leaving party and sang this in the most beautiful harmonies. So it's very, very special to me as well. With their wings, my 
I'm finding it so me. I'm really, st- I'm struggling. I'm, st- as you say, this month of confusion, but I'm actually finding reminiscing quite tricky. But it's so beautiful, Tom. Well, it is. I mean, I, as you, I'm, a lot of those lyrics are in the book. I mean, wise children, obviously, <laughs> that was a favourite phrase of <laughs> Angela Carter's, which occurs in the, in the book, in the, in Nights of the Circus. And obviously then, occurs as the title of the book that inspired your company. <laughs> My company. It's amazing. Um, um, and I, I'm going to say now, on air, I'd really like to have another crack at Nights at the Circus. Tom, are you in? Yeah, definitely. I would love to do that. It's, it was very hard to plot it, wasn't it? When it, it goes... Really, really hard. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're like 20 years better and older now. Yeah. We could do it, yeah. couldn't we? I think I, I definitely want to do that. I don't care whether we could do it or not. I really want to. Good. <laughs> I'm I think up we for can. It. I think we can. I'm. I. You, you heard it here first. That's a. It's not good. I think we should. Um. So yes. So we we went from. Yeah, we're a writing partnership now. Yeah. Can I say that I also feel that when we. When we adapted Nights at the Circus together, you did all the heavy lifting, Tom. And now I'm still adapting big novels. I do the heavy lifting myself. And You're doing you. it yourself. <laughs> for doing all the heavy lifting on Nights at the Circus. It's good. I mean, you're, it's wonderful. You're writing more and more and more, though, aren't you? Because you're, yeah. you're now writing, you're, as it were, covering the whole whole range of it. And you're, are you, have you finished Wuthering Heights yet? Oh, yes. Are you allowed to say? That's um, all solid. It's all well, done. Well, I mean, it needs to go into rehearsal and then it will have its yeah. final beautiful pummeling by other human beings. But yeah, it's ready. It's ready to go. And I have to say, the, the job you did on Wise Children, the show, well, you'll remember, you said, I'm going to adapt that book. I just said, don't. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do that. It's just never. That's much too hard. And it's a, such a loved show. It's. I mean, I still don't know how you did that at all. Well, you like, never know how you do it. That's the thing about work. You yeah. look back on it and you think, how did I do that? I don't know. Yeah. But you do. You start, don't you? You start, yeah. you, start you, you do what you think you understand. And then every day, what you don't understand gets a little bit smaller. But I think this is good. This is inspiring because... The, um, thinking about you doing why, the, the show Wise Children, it's tempting, isn't it, now, that, because everything's so difficult, for us to say, oh, you know, let's do the... Th- I know how to do that, let's do that. <laughs> but probably we should be doing the opposite. We should be we should be saying yes to the things we don't know how to do. We should be, sa- you know, the things that really, really feel impossible. Um, I don't mean we shouldn't do Nights of the Circus. I'm absolutely bang on for that. <laughs> but it, but this is surely the moment to say, well, yeah, let's try, let's try something. Let's, this is the moment to to adapt Nick Davis's Flat Earth News, <laughs> a textbook about the collapse of journalism, because it's incredibly important. And God knows how you do it. Was that, do you know what I mean, though? I do know what you mean. I I feel today I I crave a little bit of comfort. Maybe when we know we've got so we what do we yeah. say? What do those American books say? If you jump, somebody will catch you. You know, when we know that somebody yeah. will catch us at the moment, if you jump, you have no sense that 
there no, you don't. Thing there. So maybe I'm, yeah. I'm feeling more fearful. Maybe that's true. But you are Roger, right. I was, in a, I was going to Roger Grafe, who, who I know from being on the on the board of uh, Complicite, uh, the filmmaker, the campaigning criminologist and filmmaker. Um, and he said that a friend of his had used the... Um, and used a very good phrase, good phrase, um, and it was Roger or someone had said to the friend, you know, how are you? And his, his friend said, yeah, pretty well. My feet are firmly planted in midair. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that. I mean, it's, it's like very hard to make any plans. Um, I'm going to move us on because we've done yeah. so many projects together. So you not only dragged Nehi out of Cornwall to Battersea and then we together skipped into the middle scale with um, Wooden Frock, you then, um, well, what job did you get at the National? You you got a job at the National. What well, I did, yeah. It was, um, it was associate director and it was an b- amazing job because it basically meant I didn't have to, any responsibility. <laughs> I would. I just had to do kind of um, cause or, or provoke Nick Heitner into doing things he wouldn't do by himself, <laughs> which was an enormous gift from him. Absolutely. Um, you know Nick Heitner as I'm a huge fan and he's made a yeah. huge impact on my life. But you were the one that introduced us and you dragged us to the National. And yeah. You brought um, Tristan and Isolt to the Cottesloe, and then on the back of that, um, we were commissioned to make A Matter of Life and Death, which was an adaptation of the Paul Pressburger movie, much loved, um, which you and I again wrote together. And, yes. Um, it was a pivotal moment because... Do you know what? I wonder what I should imagine if I saw the show now, I think it would be a glorious mess is my guess. But I think it was glorious. I know that there were bits of it that were glorious. And I think probably as an adaptation, my guess is it was I'd look back and think, oh, that was messy. Um, But it was absolutely pulverised in the press. It was destroyed. And it wasn't just... It wasn't just a three star. It was one stars. It was two stars. It was it was um, vicious, and that was a very um, sharp, painful fall to the ground for me um, in lots of levels. Um, so having, it's very interesting, isn't it? You think you know what you want, and to be at the national is something you want, and it was such a painful, changing experience, which in some ways you never recover from. You just are changed by. And then the job is to make sure that the change is for the better, not for the worse. But before we talk about that, I'm going to play my next record, which is from Matter of Life and Death. It's Only Believe. Um, Lyrics by one and only Tom Morris, which are absolutely beautiful. (laughs) Hold out your hand and I'll touch it. Trust me, it isn't a dream. If you've got the heart to believe it, things can be more than they seem. You said only believe that the clouds are high, only believe that the sky is blue, only believe and you'll wonder why you didn't believe I'd come back to you. And they're great lyrics. This is going to actually cheer us up because it's a song that isn't too tragic today on the in the month of confusion. But I'm also going to talk about your romanticism, Tom, because you, like me, are an incurable romantic and I think this is really romantic. Hold out your hand and I'll touch it Trust me, it isn't a dream If you've got the heart to believe it Things can be more than they seem You said only believe that the clouds are high 
only believe that the sky is blue You said only believe and you wonder why You didn't believe I'd come back to you by Stu Barker, sung there by the beautiful Dom Lawton, Dom Coyote. Yes, but the, you, you said it got shredded by the critics, and that's broadly true. But I also, rem- I also remember that there really was a gender divide in the critical response. That Susanna Clapp and some of... There weren't very many women critics, but they liked it a lot more, and Susanna Clapp actually loved it, and... And that was the point where Nick Heitner decided to take them on. And he said, you know, this is an appalling, misogynistic um, cabal (laughs) of writers who are judging what kind of theatre should or shouldn't be allowed to go on. And and, And it should stop. And he was right. There, there, there really was a misogynism in that group of critics at that time, um, and I think I remember, I remember how. I mean, it's terrible to get a show torn apart by the press. It's really horrible. People think it might be something you can brush aside, but it's really hard to. Isn't it? I can. I remember what it felt like, and I remember talking to you about it. It's really difficult, but I also. I also remember Nick being 
really surprising, actually, in his response. I didn't think he was going to do that. Um, and I think there were beautiful things in it. Not only that, there was a wonderful table tennis scene with the ball on the end of a stick. Um, but also, the, the love story was beautiful. There were, yeah. It was an interesting... It was an amazing set when the beds went up yeah. into a staircase at the end. I mean, phenomenal. But but it is interesting, and I it's a, probably a whole other programme and not that interesting, but I, I sometimes think it was such a turning point for me, and had the show been well-received, I do believe my life would have taken a different course artistically. I've never made a show that big again. I've never been allowed to make a show that big or ambitious again. Um and I would be scared to. I think I've protected myself. I feel like something happened in that moment. I feel that the bubble that I was in, the beautiful knee-high bubble, was burst on lots of levels um, and questioning came in. You know, it's like it's, it's almost like the Garden of Eden, you know, and I, I think I've been more cautious with my choices. And, and the industry, you know, I, I are cautious of me as well. And um, it's really interesting there only is what is so it's not like i think i wish it had gone differently but i do think it was a it was a a crossroads and that critical response and its effect on me changed yeah. the course of my work and is that something do you think that's wholly negative or do you think it's positive in some ways oh well it can only be positive because i have a fantastic life um, yeah. but the if i can float out of myself the feminist in me thinks I was a bigger European director that was on the edge of something then. I was a young woman making unbelievably brave work. We yeah. had a bed bursting into flames while a group of smoking nurses cycled upside down and made a plane. It was it was <laughs> jaw-droppingly brave with a yeah. with a group with a beds that hung from the ceiling into a ladder, an unstable ladder that people climbed up to heaven on. I mean, I feel that 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 big vision if i don't actually feel this but my head tells me that had that show been embraced i would be being a i would be making bigger work and i can't see that as a negative because i don't necessarily think that would have made me happier or um or more inquisitive but i do think i was knocked back at a key moment and i say that as a feminist not really as a person because yeah. i've had a, i've had a the most fabulous adventure um but but i i it's just fascinating to look back on i wish i could if i could time travel it's probably the show i'd watch because i'd want to see it through the eyes of those men which i think i'd be able to now i wasn't able to then i think i'd be able to see what they saw and and maybe my response to it, it would have been interesting to also have witnessed my response but yes yeah. i i I can't look back on it as a positive experience, but neither do I feel sad about my life in in any shape or form. There are other things about that which were that, you know, apart from the scale of it, maybe it's all tied together. You know, like conversations about how it was cast and things like that. I remember that it, it, if you like the big machinery of the institution of the National Theatre wasn't really, didn't really get the idea of what it would mean to support you in your work. I mean, thats I say that at the same time as celebrating the way that, that Nick defended you in your work later on. 
be interesting to ask him about that, whether he would have supported it differently, actually, in its development. Which well, I think that's is- so interesting, Tom, isn't it? Because, you see, I think if I had... If I had understood what Nick was trying to do, I might have, as an individual, I probably would now be that European director making yeah. big fat operas. But in fact, I, I, I wasn't an individual. I was knee-high and knee-high came with me with all its bumps and surprises and eccentricities. And that was probably where the... Um, where the chemist that's the sound of my hands rubbing together um where the chemistry um happened and it fizzed so extraordinarily but also out of control is that i would i didn't know what to hold on to and i didn't yeah. know which course to to which path to follow although i did i always know which course to follow which is the loyalty of the people around me and the and the deep understanding that it's the people around me that make me who I am and I I carry that with me to this day you know I'm I am more than Emma Rice I am the the company that I am lucky to be surrounded by and that's that's probably one of the things that happened there is I think Nick challenged me to be Emma Rice and I wasn't ready able or wanting to yeah but I do think holding up holding on to your point that those really kind of visually poetic moments like the beds turning into a staircase um that that is what Susanna Clapp and the people who celebrated it saw and celebrated they were just in a minority um and that is you've got I mean you know who knows there's no right or wrong about this but I would love to see you do that be that you know find that freedom on a massive scale yeah, me too and of course you know i've just said i'm you know i'm i am who i surround myself with and that was bill mitchell who of course is lost yeah. us all now but you know it, we we were you know that was a special chemistry between us amazing the playgrounds he made with me you know were were and for me well he he was the, the most gifted and natural enabler that I've ever met. He he was he was sort of like a, a magician with it in those when I got to know you all around the wooden frock time because he did he designed that. He was the artistic director of Nehi at that point. Mm-hmm. Um and he was there absolutely I've I've his sense of joy at seeing the collaborations which he was in some way causing or enabling to happen was complete, wasn't it? And it was irresistible. It was almost as if everyone wanted, not that anyone didn't want to collaborate, but but seeing how much pleasure he would get from that. And it made him humbler and humbler about what he was doing in it, which was, of course... Seminal. Seminal. I, I miss him so much. I miss him so much. Well, the, um, I don't know if I'm allowed. Is it my turn with a piece of it music? It is. It is. Because it is a Bill Mitchell piece of music. I mean, it's not quite. But, um, the, I remember going to the Eden Project because he had said that there was um, a, a band from Rajasthan in northern India playing. Um, and we went to see them. 
I can't even remember what year it was. And, and you may or may not be now, I can't remember. Um, but it was an extraordinary, um, extraordinary gig. And um, Bill was talking to me about it and he said, well, this is where, where gypsy music, what we now call gypsy music started in Northern India. Um, and I remember talking to him and Mike about it. And, um, and one of them, I think Bill said, look, there's a film you should watch, which is the story of, of this migration of music from Northern India into Egypt and then ran through Turkey and into Europe. Really simple, simple print, you know, the structure of the film is just the music in every place in the um, in the Gypsy and the Roma communities which are playing the music. And the last piece of music in that film is this extraordinary kind of visceral um, song, the song about a blackbird, um, which is uh, by a singer called La Caita, who I'm desperate to see live and have not been able to, don't know if she's singing live anymore. There, are, You can Google her and you find little bits of her singing, but that, that's, and it reminds me of the spirit of all of that time. A, 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 at its passionate and confrontational end, which is always part of your work, Emma. So, um, yes, that's, that's, um, I don't know what the song's called, but it's by La Caita.
una noche Astonishing, and that takes me back to Stu Barker and Bill and Nehi, and that sort of um, how we were. I feel that we really were part of a folk tradition with great integrity. Not we weren't looking back. We weren't. We were in it. We were living a a, a life of a of a folk tradition, and um, and it felt incredibly vivid and edgy and raw and passionate and. Um, all of those amazing artists were living that life. What a privilege. And that kind of brings me on to talk a bit about... I mean, everybody knows that you're a great director and a great producer and a great enabler and uh, um, uh, running buildings. But And I love you for all those things, Tom, and respect you for all those things. But I think the thing that I feel most sort of... Um, gets through the skin let's get through the layers is is i think uh, an understanding of folk culture and it's a terrible word isn't it it makes you you know it brings up you know homemade hats and things and i'm not talking about that i'm talking about a really um profound connection to the human experience and how we're walking in the footsteps of others and on the land and through the soul and i feel that in everything we've done you've understood that on not on not an intellectual level, on a real spiritual level, and um, I feel it 
it comes through your lyrics. I feel that you understand folk culture in a way that is so moving and so beautiful. And I remember um, the when we were working on Wooden Frock, I wanted to use a song by Kate Rusby called Shoheen, which I was obsessed with at the time and is my final song choice. And I think I wanted to use it. I wanted to put it in the show because we were using found music. And I think Stu Barker said, I'd like to write this for you, Emma. I'm a, I'm a folk writer. <laughs> oh, OK. And I think this was one of those moments where you two went off. And I and I can remember thinking, if I don't like it, I'm going to put in my Kate Rusby. If it's not good enough, I'm going to... And you and Stu went off into a room together. And you wrote Sister, My Sister. And... The lyrics are, Sister, my sister, lie here beside me while the cold wind blows. Until the night is gone, lie here and I will keep you warm. Sister, my sister, lie here beside me while the wild sea roars. Until the night is gone, lie here and I will hold your hand. Sister, my sister, lie here beside me while the silver moon shines. Until the dawn is come, lie here and I will be your eyes. And Tom, I think those lyrics are some of the most beautiful lyrics I've ever written. I think they're so full of hope. I find it amazing that they're written through the female lens, which again so sh- so sh- shows such humility and empathy whilst working with me as a woman, but also in a folk story that had a female heroine. But it feels of the rocks. I can't believe sometimes when I read your lyrics in particular that, that you've written them because they feel like they existed pre-time and I want to say that as a profound compliment to you that I don't know how you do it and I don't want to know how you do it but I, I see that in you and I feel it so strongly well that's that's incredibly kind of you I mean that is incredibly kind of you thank you um I think those were the first lyrics I wrote <laughs> on the wooden frock um but weirdly um all I would say about the is that I am passionate about about folk music and always drawn to it. Um, I I think that but I don't think I know it um, from the in on the inside. I can't. I mean, I, I don't think I, I I'm authoritative. I think it's a kind of um, yearning, honestly, that that I have for the the connection that I find in that kind of music, in, in La Caita, for example, and that I found with Nehi, the, the, the that sense of a, a band of people who were not only connected in, in practice or ideology, but somehow um, in a sort of familial way, in a, in a, in a way that they got stuck in and would always be in and that's that has got the the, it, the understanding of the importance of that sort of connection is is really um, is making me feel more awake now in this conversation than I was when we started it's all about connection isn't it I've been thinking about it today you know the what we've all been through together we always used to say that about Nehi if Nehi closed if the Arts Council stopped the money and the the, the guillotine came down it, it couldn't be closed we we know each other we love each other we've watched mm. each other fall in love and fall out of love and have babies and 
we're nearly at the end of burying each other's parents. You know, we're 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 there. You know, it's un it's unbreakable those bonds, and you're part of that. You're a big part of that. Well, I'm honoured. I wish. <laughs> I've um. We've continued. We haven't written together because I've got more and more egotistical, and I write my own shows now, don't I? And I copy your lyrics. I write lyrics. And right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sort of try and get inspired and inspired by that. But although we did, we did venture into the opera, which I really don't want to talk about. But um, the saddest thing about the opera, of which there were many sad things, was that we went. We didn't work in the room together. We weren't in the room together. We were I tell you, busy. There's some good work in that. There was some blooming good work in that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, but you've carried on being the most amazing supporter of Wise Children and um, and in, in all ways. So before we play out on my final choice, which is Shoheen by Kate Rusby, which is really saying, Tom, you are my guardian angel and um, my theatre guardian angel. You've been there from the beginning and throughout this, the fact that we could talk for hours about all the different levels of our journey. But I want to say thank you. And that, Tom, your energy lights up rooms and lifts the lowest spirits. You're a believer, a believer in theatre, in progress, in love and a believer in me. And your friendship and loyalty has seen us dart between so many differing roles, from director to producer, artistic director, writer, lyricist, supporter, programmer. But most of all, you've been a steadfast friend in life and in work. And I genuinely wouldn't be here and where I am without you. Your belief took me from Cornwall to Battersea and from Battersea to the South Bank and from the National Theatre to the bloody globe and the globe to the opera. And now we're still taking risks and making magic in lockdown with Bristol Old Vic hosting and co-producing Wise Children and our live broadcasts. So thank you. Here's to whatever's next because it looks like we're stuck with each other, doesn't it? Thank you, Emma. Let's do it all again, but differently. <laughs> I'm going to hand over to Kate Rusby before I start crying again. Thank you. Oh, no.
the sun I cannot rest tonight Shahid a memory or connection you'd like to share on tea and biscuits leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846 that's 0117 318 3846 keep checking our social media for details of our next show tea and biscuits is part of wise children's lockdown thanks for hanging out with us bye